This is when Jesus was walking with his disciples after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus. Pray for the Spirit's guidance. Our Lord and our God, as we open your book of life, Lord, I just pray that you give us a, a peace and a maturity of faith that helps us to run the race for you, Lord, not walk it, not stumble along on it, not just tiptoe it, but run the race. Give us that maturity to trust in you that the direction of our lives and our efforts put forth in this world are pleasing to you, Lord. I just pray that in Jesus' name. Luke 23, starting in verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he, broke, he took in the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those who were with them gathering together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. You may be seated. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us the scriptures? I guess this is kind of an end of the year, beginning of the year sermon. There is some, a lot of Christmas verses in here we're going to read through. I wasn't quite done with Christmas. But I want our hearts to burn, to burn with the truth of God's word, his scripture, that we can walk this life or run the the path that God has for us with confidence and trust. I was thinking about this last night, about three o'clock, I think, in the morning, (laughs) And I wanted to kind of come up with an analogy, I guess, or analogy came to me. But, you know, I, I was raised in Watertown. We, we were a block from the train station, so we had a, a train intersection. Milwaukee Road and the Chicago Northwestern, block away, so we'd hear trains all the time. A lot of our lives was around the train tracks when I was young, as a kid. I remember even today when I stay in hotels, I hear that There's a distinct sound when the, the trains by the depot cross the frog, it's called. That's the intersection between two rail lines. They call it a frog, massive piece of steel, because I worked for the railroad and we replaced one. But I always remember that. But I also remember those tracks. You know, they were straight, they were narrow. And these trains, back then, they'd go about 50 or 60 miles an hour. 
Then they upgraded the tracks, and they put in the welded rails, which were hundreds and hundreds of yards long without a joint. Now the Amtraks go 70 miles an hour, even through town. But, you know, it's kind of like with us as believers. We have to trust the road or the track we're on that it's pleasing to God. That it'll hold us up. It'll be there for us. But I think many times we get distracted. And I remember we had a, I worked for the railroad that one year, and we had to go up by Portage where the power plant was. About a half mile from the power plant, there was a rail line that delivered coal. The power plant was doing work. A lot of excavating, and if you're ever by Portage, you see a lot of cattails, a lot of marsh. But they were digging a half mile away, and when the train would come to deliver the coal, the tracks were sinking because that mud was just... So every day, all summer long, we'd get there in the morning, the tracks would be like this, there'd be busted rails, and by nighttime, we had had it back in place to be straight and narrow. But isn't that how our life is at times? All the distractions of the world, sin and that, we're just tiptoeing down our Christian life. I mean, the train would have been gravel in for us because the gravel was just being swept away. But they'd back in because they didn't want to tip the engine over. Release the gravel, we'd have to raise and level the tracks, release and raise. Every day, all summer long, as they were digging that. Till finally they got enough ballast in there where the tracks would hold up. But I just think sometimes that's how my life is. You get pulled to and fro and you take your mind off the peace of God and what God wants the cares of the world, especially, you know, we see so many things in the news nowadays. Our nation isn't doing as well as it should be. And we get distracted. And instead of running and trusting that the path we're on will hold us and carry us, we kind of tiptoe along thinking, uh, are we going to get derailed? Are we going to fall? Are we going to fail? We have the evidence of faith that we shouldn't do that. I say it gives us com- me comfort that Paul, I think he had the same problem. He'd take his, his mind off the prize. At least he had it justified. He is getting stoned, shipwrecked, chased, beaten, whipped. We're not at that point. People may not like us. We call us things we don't like, but, but I hope this as we look at some of these verses for this next year, it gives us the strength and the comfort to know that God's word is true. His promises are true, that he's here for us. Did not our hearts burn within us while we, he talked to us on the road while he opened the scriptures? Therein lies the answer. The answer to our peace and our comfort. It's God's word is absolute truth. 
And we run into problems when we say, well, I just don't believe that portion of Scripture or don't understand it. Well, yeah, it's understandable not to understand it, but some of it is we're looking through a cloudy glass. But if there's a clear teaching in it, and we can't say, well, I just don't agree with it. And unfortunately, we live in a day when many churches don't agree with the, the clear messages in the gospel. But we have no excuse. You know, in Revelations 22, 18, it tells us, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from this words of the book of prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. There's consequences for saying, I don't believe. You know, we can say we don't understand because all of us are on a learning curve. Just like the disciples on the road to Emmaus. They were taught. They grew up with the words of the scriptures. But they needed clarification. They needed Jesus to clarify the words through his preaching, the preaching of his words. And remember why Jesus came. In John 18, 37, then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. You know, that's what Jesus did when he, when he opened the scriptures to those disciples on the road to Emmaus. He was opening up the truths. Explaining how all the scriptures pointed to him. But you know, he's educating us through that as well because it's written in his book. And again, these guys were aware of it. They grew up in a theocracy. They knew the Messiah was coming. They heard the words of God. And then it was clarified to him after his resurrection. You know, it was the talk of the town. Jesus' life was not hidden under a bushel basket. You know, in Luke 24, they said, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? They were assuming everybody knew. In Mark 128, and at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. The whole area was saturated with his truth from his birth. Remember, there was a time between the Old and the New Testament, about 500 years, no prophecies, no hearing from God, no oracles from God. Yet people remain faithful. So many of these prophecies, these things that were told about his birth, where it would be, about John the Baptist, they're 500, 800,000 years prior to the occurrence. Let's look at some of these. You know, Mary, 
she visits Elizabeth. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to the town of Judea, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud voice, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken of her from the Lord. It was a short prophecy that the angel told her that she'd have a baby. But the Messiah was foretold from long ago. You know, and the fulfillment of these prophecies is evidence of faith to strengthen our faith. Real events, real people, recorded for us in the scriptures. And what was Mary's reply? And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And he has spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. She praises God. The uniqueness of God, the power of God. The birth of John the Baptist. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth. And she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. And they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. They made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet. And he wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all the neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Fear came upon the people because they understood that God was revealing something special. They had evidence that God was working among his people. Again, this was not just hidden 
through all the hill country of Judea. This was in the open. Our Lord's future, future disciples would have heard of this. Mary, being pregnant, claiming it was the Messiah, would have had people pondering in their hearts, could this really be? Yeah, some would say, no, she just you know, didn't behave. But you know, even for, for us, I remember myself before coming to faith, every city and every town you drive through, there was churches. You'd see the steeples, and I pondered, what is it? The efforts of men to build all these churches, there's something to it. Unfortunately, being raised Catholic, it didn't work out too well in a young age. But I pondered in my heart, just as these ponder in their heart, are these true? Is this true? And I think all of us did that before our salvation. The evidence was there. God was working in our hearts. Because it's the truth, there will be evidence. And what did Zechariah, his prophecy, and the father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he had spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to the remember of the holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the land, hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercies of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in shadows of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Again, these words would be spread throughout Judea. Zechariah knew the prophecies. He knew that the forerunner would come before Jesus. Now he knew it was his son. The people would ponder these things in their hearts. These truths. People would have known of Simeon. He would have been telling everybody, God gave me a message that I will see the Messiah, before I die. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. And remember Anna in the temple, and there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phemuel, the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting in prayer day and night. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God, 
to speak of him and all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. The people of that area were seeing all these things coming together. And they were pondering in their hearts the truths of the prophecies. Was this the time? Was this really happened? Yes, he was born in Bethlehem. The people would know that. He fled to Egypt. He was a Nazarene. All this evidence circulating for his future disciples and it's evidence they needed. There's building precept upon precept from our Lord's life, from before his life. But like us, they, before faith, we needed the direction on how all these pieces come together. Because that is what is vital for a vibrant faith, an effective faith. You know, we as believers do not have a blind faith. We have an evidential faith. Our faith is based on truth. And truth and events recorded that are true always leave evidence. Never think that we don't have an a evidential faith. The scriptures are full of evidence. And they're confirmed by non-scriptural text. Evidence from beyond the Bible. Cities mentioned. Peoples mentioned. It just gives truth to the accuracy of this book. In Ezekiel 26.4, talks about the walls of Tyre. They shall destroy the walls of Tyre. They were a wicked people. And break down her towers. And I will scrape her soil from her and make her a bare rock. She shall be in the midst of the sea, a place for the spreading of nets. For I have spoken, declares the Lord God. And she shall become plunder for the nations, and her daughters on the mainland shall be killed by the sword. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Then I will make you go down with those who go down to the pit, to the people of old. And I will make you to dwell in the world below, among ruins from of old with those who go down to the pit, so that you will not be inhabited. But I will set beauty in the land of the living. I will bring you to a dreadful end, and you shall be no more. Though you be sought for, you will never be found again, declares the Lord. Pretty dire prophecy. He said, Tyre will be destroyed, the walls destroyed, And the debris from that city will be swept away. It'll be a bare rock where fishermen clean their nets. Pretty specific. Now we know from history, Nebuchadnezzar attacked 
and sacked Tyre, killing thousands, destroying the city, knocking down many of the walls. But that did not fulfill the prophecy. The walls and the debris remained. Many of the inhabitants survived. They fled to an island a half a mile offshore and built the new city of Tyre. But 250 years later, along comes Alexander the Great, and he attacks in Persia. They come to the old city, and they look, no one there. New city half mile away. So he calls his architects, what can we do? They tell him, well, the water's shallow out to the island. We have all this rubble. If we scrape all that up, cast it in the sea, we can move a, build a causeway, and our army can advance and destroy the city. That's exactly what happened. They scraped to the bare rocks. It was bedrock, just like the prophecy said. And if you go to Tyre today, what do you see? It's a place where people, fishermen, spread their nets out. Because of the bare rock, it doesn't snag direct. The nets doesn't hook them. No city, even though it's a prime place for a city. Prophecy fulfilled to the detail. To the detail. Remember when Lot was taken prisoner? It said four kings from Mesopotamia. And they attacked five kings. This was in the Dead Sea area. For years and years and years, archaeologists said, no, there's no record of any of these kings. The Bible's wrong. Well, Julius Wellhausen in 1990 did extensive excavations in that area. And it now is a known historical fact. The names of the kings, where they camped, and where they moved through the area. Again, time has revealed through archaeology that the truth in the scriptures is clear and precise. But the critics never stop. Those who hate God even try to create false evidence. Leading archaeologists said the Hittites never existed, even though they're mentioned in eight different chapters of the Old Testament. But Dr. Hugo Wilkler looked into it, He found 40 of the Hittite cities. And the scriptures recorded a treaty between the Egyptians and the Hittites, and everybody laughed. They said it's better, it, there's more chance of a treaty between England and the Choctaw Indians, which is a tribe here in Texas, than a treaty between the Hittites and the Egyptians. Well, on the Egyptian wall is the retreaty printed out precisely as it says in the scriptures. 
You know, the Bible tells us the rocks cry out. History cries out. The archaeologists find these truths, these biblical truths, the evidence of the truth of the scriptures because the scriptures are true. You know, and it's amazing the power of this book, how it, how it affects men. One such was Sir William Ramsey. He was a PhD at Oxford, a God hater. There were many God haters there at that time. And he wanted to discredit the Bible. And he said, I'm going to look at the book of Acts, Paul's missionary journeys. And the other God haters supported him for 25 years to look for evidence of those journeys of Paul. And what did he find out? He said, Dr. Luke was the most accurate historian he has found. Every detail to the minutest detail, the smallest detail, he found evidence for accurate. His critics didn't like that. He became a believer after it. He could not refute the evidence. Fortunately, he was a man of integrity. Even though his presupposition was a God-hater and he wanted to find false things about the book of Acts, he had the integrity to print the truth. Thousands and thousands of biblical sites have been excavated. Thousands of the records of individuals that pertain to the description. And the scholars, even the non-believing scholars say, the Bible is the greatest and the most accurate history books of all books. Because it's based on truth. You'll find modern critics, but they have their presupposition. And Miller Burroughs of Yale, and I believe he was a God hater as well, he states the case against the critics, because he too is a man of integrity. In many cases, archaeology has refuted the views of the modern critics. In a number of instances, it has been shown that their views rest on false assumptions and unreal artificial schemes of historical development. The excessive skepticism of many liberal theologians stems not from careful evaluation of the available data, but from an enormous predisposition against the supernatural. The predisposition against God. Many lies are brought against the scriptures, brought against Christianity. It has been from the beginning. But anybody who looks with integrity at the evidence 
The truth is, is it's the God of love who saved mankind. Came into the world, just as the scriptures said, to be man-God. And for us believers, if we look and then just accept the evidence, even the outside evidence, it should be making that rail line straight for us to run our path with confidence and trust that these words will carry us. Yeah, there will be difficulties, there will be hardships. But we can rely on God's promises, his peace that that surpasses all understanding. His peace that brings peace to ourselves because we're not at war with God. And a peace where we can have peace with many of our neighbors if possible. And my prayer out of this message is that we rely on that peace more and more and less on ourselves. And that peace brings us to maturity that others see the love of God in our hearts. They see a peace that even in difficulties we demonstrate love and truth. People will hate you. They will reject you. That should never bother a believer. The only person or God is the one that we do not want to be rejected by. He has given us a task. We should look for the clear path and cross and run that path with trust that he is there for us. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, as we go into the new year, I just pray that you are there for us. I know you are, but let us have the confidence to know that you are there and that we're here for a purpose in this point in time in history to serve you, Lord. And I pray that all of us are effective in that, in, our, in the realms of our lives. And that we don't worry about the criticism, the hatred, and the distractions, the sin but that we continually get up and mature in you, Lord. Give us that maturity. Take a sponge and wipe the sins away, the sins that hinder us and hamper us, and let us run the race that you have placed before us with confidence and love for you. In Jesus' name, amen.